My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Cinema, the divine stage of the modern age. Casts of dazzling Ken Speckle guided by subtle injunction designed to instigate transcendence of form, to shape ideas and plant seeds that grow in the minds of the audience. Much can be said about the themes and tales that leave modern viewers spellbound, and returning to elucidate and expand our knowledge on the occulted symbolism in Hollywood is Robert Sullivan IV who joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Robert Sullivan IV. When an actor and actress appears and in a film and the intent is to transfer their cinematic baggage from another film into their current project, uh-huh. but it's done in a way that is akin to sorcery. I'll give you an example of this. This is one of the best examples. I routinely give this one. There are many others, but this is what I'm talking about is, for example, in the Star Wars movie, the uh, the one that came out episode, the, the first one of the new trilogy, The Force Awakens, mm. there is a scene at the very beginning of that where Max von Sydow is on this desert planet and he gives the guy the little piece of the chip or the map, and then Kylo Ren lands and kills him and the movie continues. That scene at that beginning is, it's also, it's psychological. It's a transference, but you don't pick up on it, but your subconscious mind does. The placement of Boncito on the desert planet is designed to conjure two other movies that are reminiscent of that scene. So what movie do we have where Max Boncito opens a movie in a desert playing a hermit and confronts an evil figure and winds up getting killed? Of course, it's The Exorcist where Sponcito is in the desert as the hermit, the Jesuit, confronts the giant statue of Pazuzu and then winds up getting killed.
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And with me today, Robert William Sullivan the Fourth returns to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Robert, how are you today, sir? I'm very well. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for that wonderful introduction. It's my pleasure to return to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. It's wonderful to be here again. Thank you. Yeah, last time you were here, we discussed mainly your book, The Royal Ark of Enoch, The Impact of Masonic Ritual, Philosophy, and Symbolism, which I just loved. It goes very deep. So folks who are interested, if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to that episode after this one. But I just want to remind the folks that you're probably more well-known for your cinema symbolism series. At least that's the what the majority of shows who interview you decide to talk to you about. And I, being a sort of, I like to be the black sheep, so I was like, you know what, let's be different. Let's interview him on the Royal Ark of Enoch. He's a Freemason. He's very well-versed in all this stuff. And your book, The Royal Ark of Enoch, is a, to- a tome, as they say. It's a very large book, and it's full of information. So... Yeah, I just wanted to kind of reiterate that. But you're much more than just an author. You're a lawyer, a historian, a theologian, an antiquarian, a jurist, a philosopher. For folks who may not have heard your first appearance on the show, tell us where this all started, Robert. What got you interested in all this stuff? Well, right. This all started many moons ago. It actually probably goes back to when I was in high school, maybe even earlier than that. I've been asked this question before. When I was a boy growing up, I was always interested in the mysterious UFOs, cryptozoology, mysticism, magic, stuff like that. Um, And it kind of just stayed with me my whole life. I I was always interested. I guess I started forming a link to it with film, with Star Wars. I was born in 1971, so of course this was the movie that I grew up with as a child. And of course years later I learned that the... That Star Wars, this is, of course, episodes four, five, and six, were a, re, a retelling, a pastiche of Joseph Campbell's monomyth, that this was just basically ancient mythology, just rebranded and renamed. And I, that always thought, I, that always kind of stuck with me. I always thought that was interesting, because it's really a study of comparative mythology, even comparative religion. And then when I went to Oxford initially, which was hard to believe 30 years ago, that would have been 1992-93, that's where I kind of really was introduced to the idea of the hermetic Hermeticism and its influence on, on, on modernity, on popular culture, government, philosophy, what have you. And that stuck with me. You learn about people over there like John Dee, really like Aleister Crowley, who I'd, of course I had heard of, but didn't know as much about him then as before until I went. So that, that's kind of where all this got started with. And I've said on other shows, I'll repeat it here. I may have said it on the first show, I can't recall. I come from a line of Maryland Freemasons, going back to my grandfather's, great-grandfather's. So Freemasonry for me was always there. I knew what it was. I knew what it was from a very early age. It skipped over my father, but it was always something that I wanted to join that, like I said, I knew about. And when the opportunity presented itself in 1996, I took it. This was after I graduated Gettysburg, but before I went to law school. And so I've been a Freemason since 1997. And yeah, it's just been a long journey and doing this stuff. And when I first started doing podcasting, I did do a lot of Freemasonry, but even now it's just really more about the movie books and stuff like that. I occasionally get hit on the Masonic stuff, but really the Masonic book, The Royal Archivina, came out in 2012. I can't believe that's been 13 years, excuse me, 11 years, uh, but I am working on a third edition of that. So hopefully when that comes out, I can continue podcasting and revisit Freemasonry again. 
Mm. Fascinating. Yeah. And maybe this isn't exactly what you're here to talk about, but I have another podcast called Esoteric America, where we dive into the history of the United States. And Maryland is such a unique state to hear that you come from a long line of Freemasons in Maryland. They must go back to some of the original lodges that started on the East Coast, right? Because Maryland's one of the original colonies and there was sort of an old history connected to George Calvert, the first baron of Baltimore. Very few people know that Baltimore is named after this guy. Oh, absolutely. The lodge, I'm not saying this to sound braggadocious or anything, but the lodge that I am in, it's called Amicable St. John's Lodge Number 25. When I joined in 1997, it was just called Amicable Lodge Number 25. And then, as it is now, it is the third oldest lodge in the state of Maryland, and it actually predates the founding of Baltimore City. So, yeah, it's, as far as Maryland goes and the history of the United States, it's a pretty old lodge. Like I said, it actually predates the founding of Baltimore City. So, yeah, it's uh, Mar- Maryland has a rich history. I don't deny that. Yeah, it's... Fascinating stuff. Maybe we can get you on that other show sometime and talk about that. But recently, I'm not sure, maybe you're familiar with this author, but I recently had a gentleman on the podcast named Jason Horsley, and he has some very strong opinions on Stanley Kubrick. And I'm not asking you to debate or even really comment on it. I'm just bringing this up because I'm sure so many people (laughs) took umbrage with our dear friend Horsley's comments on Kubrick that I'd like to at least give a balanced view and give you an opportunity because essentially Horsley's and I'm boiling it down quite a bit here so excuse me if I'm being inaccurate not you but the listeners Horsley's very he's in the position that Kubrick was a faker and had a lot of sort of hints at things that never really panned out But, you know, when it comes to Kubrick's movies, I don't think there's any other director whose films are analyzed quite as much as his, especially in the realm of conspiracy thought, because his films tend to sort of include a lot of those themes. And I guess Kubrick was, for some people, this sort of grand revealer. And for Horsley, he's more of a great sort of redirector or a sort of red herring to get people look in the wrong direction potentially right what are your thoughts on kubrick and his huge work because his films are very big in at least as they're ranked by critics right i personally like kubrick's films i'm a fan of his i think they're very well made and what i like about kubrick is i would say that i think the guy definitely knows what he is doing when it comes to filmmaking there is some smoking gun evidence on Kubrick that is does help somewhat pin this down a little bit. The, there's a couple ways you can dissect it. His movies, I think, are very well made, and I think they're very well done. I like some of the even lesser known, well-known ones. I mean, I think Lolita is a great film. It has a lot going on in it. You get, of course, you get into things like The Shining, and of course, Eyes Wide Shut. This is kind of like the conspiracy. This is where all this stuff points to. The one thing I'll say about Kubrick is that I like about him is he uses symbolism and themes and he knows when to use them and when not to use them. And I definitely think I knew what he was doing. I don't think it's an accident. He uses repetition and doubles in The Shining ad nauseum. 
and I know that's not an accident. And then the reason for that is he's conveying to the viewer that the that the hotel there, the Overlook, is an Ouroboros. It's a snake biting its tail. It's an endless cycle of repetition and reincarnation. So, so to convey that both consciously and subconsciously, he just repeat things. He repeats things, tropes, numbers over and over again, and that's intentional. I have no. It, it would be too much for it to be a coincidence. The whole thing with the moon landing, I, I find very interesting because. If you look at it objectively and you just look at The Shining and you look at the scene with Danny with the rocket with the Apollo 11 sweatshirt and he gets up and goes to room 237, you can say, okay, well, well, this is just nothing. This is just maybe a happenstance or the kid's just wearing an Apollo 11 jersey or whatever it was, a sweatshirt. But there is actually some evidence that Kubrick was heavily involved with NASA. And to suggest that, you know, what I've always suggested or postulated was they actually went to the moon the Apollo 11 astronauts, but they just couldn't film there. So they retain, the government retained Kubrick to film the footage in a, in a soundstage, in a Rybat soundstage. And when I say Rybat, that's a CIA cryptonym meaning top secret. So one of the, if you cut out just the little boy, Danny, with the Apollo 11 sweater, and you just want to look at this, a lot of people aren't aware of this. I talk about this in CS3. Believe it or not, the smoking gun evidence comes in the movie actually made before The Shining. It was a movie called Barry Lyndon, which takes place during the Napoleonic Wars. And when he filmed that, he wanted to film scenes strictly by candlelight. Well, if you know anything about filmmaking, that's quite impossible to do because candles just don't generate enough light. It's impossible to do. If you ever watch an old black and white movie where there's a candle burning, there's always some exterior light off camera. And they blow the candle and then they turn off the light exterior light, the off-camera light immediately try to sink it. But it's just simply impossible to film with simply by candlelight. Well, NASA had developed a lens that allowed this, that essentially you could, it was done in a way that it absorbed enough light. And uh, Kubrick went to NASA for these lenses and they gave them to him, no problem. And essentially Barry Lyndon, this is the movie before The Shining, was actually filmed by Kubrick using NASA technology. So Nick, the logical question to ask is, well, how does Kubrick get access just willy-nilly to these high-tech NASA lenses? And the answer, the question answers itself is because he had filmed the moon footage for him, and uh, this was kind of just them helping him out, as it were, to film this Victorian, or excuse me, this Napoleonic War movie oh. called Barry Lyndon. So, so that that's quite astonishing. One of the other things Kubrick does, and I, not too many people are aware of this, and not to be honest with you, Mark, I just picked up on this very recently. And one of the things that I talk about in my books, this is my movie books, is what filmmakers will do to convey or transfer different things. And of course, we talk about symbolism and this, that, and the other, Gnosticism, alchemy, Freemasonry, that's all fine. But it really goes a lot deeper than that. You're talking about things like music, settings, color schemes. These can also be used effectively. One of the things that also can be used is the placement of certain actors and actresses. And one of the things that I always found very interesting about The Shining was, um, I didn't find it interesting, I found this interesting when I found it out, was Kubrick, was Kubrick going to, what are the clues that Kubrick's giving you about this moon landing footage? And of course, we know the one with the little boy standing up, and we, and I, we know the, now the one about the lenses with NASA, but is there anything else? And I guess what I was looking at with Kubrick was, has he embedded anything in there that maybe using an actor and actress to convey that he filmed the moon landing footage. And what I found out was quite astonishing. And you have to be familiar with the world of James Bond, of all things. This is the Ian Fleming spy novels, but more importantly, the movies. 
And the uh, the James Bond movie that came out in 1971, starring Sean Connery, it's Connery's last appearance as Bond in a canon in a Bond movie that's actually canonical. This is Diamonds Are Forever, and if you watch that, there's a scene in that where James Bond Connery breaks into this top secret NASA government facility in the Nevada desert that's obviously supposed to be Area 51. And as he's running around trying to escape, he actually winds up in the soundstage where they're filming the moon landing. They're faking the moon landing. And this is right there in Diamonds Are Forever. You can go watch the movie anytime you want to. And Bond winds up escaping and he, he flees and the movie continues. But at any rate, for this one portion, he winds up in the soundstage where they're faking the moon landing. So I often wondered, I thought to myself, well, in The Shining, does Kubrick actually pay homage or somehow reference James Bond? to suggest that he filmed the moon landing. The Shining came out in, what, 7980? So this James Bond movie's from 71, so it's not too far from not too far removed. And the answer is yes, he does. And he actually hires James Bond himself and puts him in the movie. And no, I'm not talking about Roger Moore and Sean Connery. And this is where things become interesting because, and I was just, I was not aware of this. I just found this out very recently. The first actor, believe it or not, to play, to play James Bond was not Sean Connery in Dr. No, it was actually Barry Nelson, of all things, who played James Bond in a made-for-TV movie in 19, either 54, 56. It was on a, a television show called Climax, and they made a little mini-movie based on Casino Royale. And the guy who played Bond was none other than Barry Nelson. Well, of course, there's The Shining. Barry Nelson is, of course, Stuart Ullman. This is the guy who rents the Overlook or gives Jack Nor Jack Torrance the job, Jack Nicholson, Jack Torrance, the job at the Overlook. So I've always thought, I've come to the conclusion that Kubrick's hiring of Nelson was a way to reference James Bond and to secure, securitously reference Diamond Honor Forever, where you have this fake moon landing scene. And again, this was Kubrick tipping you off as to he is the guy who filmed the moon landing. When you couple that with the lenses and then you couple with the Danny sweatshirt scene, I, I think it's pretty convincing they, there's something here. There's smoke. Where there's smoke, there's fire. And again, I'll just end on this. I'll just end on this. I don't know the other guest. I'm not familiar with him. But I can tell you this with 100% certainty is Kubrick definitely incorporates esoteric themes and devices and tricks and tropes in his movies. And that's, I, that's very well documented. Yeah, and I should apologize. I sort of did a poor job in paraphrasing my previous guest's opinion and yeah i don't want to pin you against him or anything like that because his oh no he, yeah he's entitled to his own opinion of right, course. That's right. fine. that's no problem well and you know, I, I mean, someone could listen to me and think oh this, this is whatever but I, i'm just giving you my opinion yeah i and i appreciate that i did want to clarify because it is interesting kubrick having again these lenses at this same sort of time when all this is going on even what is it dr strange love right is that the yeah, name well, of that, that that's the that's the theory behind it is was that the government had watched strange love in 2001 right. and were impressed with his filmmaking techniques and th those two movies primarily are the ones that got him the moon landing job to film it in this top secret studio now you can go a little step further with this and say this Kubrick is trying to reveal this dark cabal in government or in, in Eyes Wide Shut. My, my issue with that is the movie Eyes Wide Shut clearly shows a secret society, call it whatever you want, running, pulling the string, strings from behind the scenes. Sort of my, I don't dispute that. And there's definitely imagery in there that tends towards the occult and he uses symbolism. And there's a lot of interplay going on with the Christmas lights. But 
I've always thought that if there was some massive conspiracy, the movie would never have come out. The movie is released. You, know, you can go watch it. So I've always kind of thought that, well, the powers that be didn't really want the movie ever to be seen. It would never have been released. Um, the movie does come out. Now it's true. Kubrick does die right after that. Some people will tell you he was murdered for making the movie. But I do believe that when you look at Kubrick as a whole, whether it be even movies we haven't talked about, like Full Metal Jacket and Lolita, these are, again, I mean, he, he does so much in his films. One of the things, I was just on another show talking about this. If you're a fan of Kubrick, one of the things that's critical in his movies, and this isn't conspiratorial in any way, shape, or form, is the toilet. And I mean that quite literally, right. the bathroom. All the critical, not all, but so many of the critical scenes in his movies take place in bathrooms. Right. And that's irrefutable. We can go through a whole laundry list if you want. Well, and you, you make a great point in that if they wanted this film kibosh, squashed, it would have been squashed and not available to people. But I'll admit, I had never seen that movie. I watched it very recently after speaking with Jason. And I was a little bit underwhelmed, given I was a little biased after speaking with him. But I was underwhelmed, and he made the point that what was really controversial about Eyes Wide Shut is what was happening off the air or off the screen with the Scientologists and Kubrick, I guess, keeping two of their prominent members on set for something like 40-something weeks. It's really long shoot, at least longer than films were accustomed for back then. And yeah, I guess there was this whole dispute between Miscavige and Kubrick about Kubrick's daughter becoming a Scientologist and maybe this film was Kubrick's way of somehow getting back at the Scientologist, but it I don't know if the film itself was that, or maybe the process of filming it, something. You, you understand what I'm insinuating here? Yeah, I, I never really saw a Scientology angle with the movie. Yeah, well, it, to me, was more reminiscent of this idea that there's this secret cabal of people controlling the world, essentially. Well, when you consider Crowley's connection to Scientology through Hubbard, L. Ron Hubbard, and then Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman being the main stars also. Sure. But I understand what you're saying, where the film itself doesn't really denote anything that would suggest Scientology unless right. you knew about right. the actors' personal lives. Yeah, I maybe he was somehow upset with Scientology, but then if that's the case... Cruz probably wouldn't have done the movie. Right. They don't, they take that very, they take that stuff very seriously. Yeah. And of course you have, right. Crowley is sort of the influencer of, you know, Parsons. And then it's through Parsons and Hubbard, who is his assistant that, that kind of births the Scientology movement. But no, that's certainly one way of looking at it. I always, I always, I always saw it. I described it as sort of the grand Illuminati movie where he's talking about these secret puppet masters pulling the strings behind the behind all world events and stuff like that and there is a lot of secret society secret society imagery in the thing and there is things going on there's a lot of interplay with the with the lights and stuff like that with the christmas lights i always like the movie it's to me my kind of take on eyes wide shut is i if you just sit there and watch it it's kind of boring i thought um that's what i mean by underwhelming <laughs> yeah yeah but i think in a way because you're just spending time just watching tom cruise sort of make faces and just walking around <laughs> yeah. new york city but yeah. you know i wonder my my kind of take on it was i think that's intentional because i think mm -hmm. what kubrick is trying to do is say 
don't watch if you watch this movie just through regular lenses you're going to be bored to tears with it you got to watch this movie through a symbol with a symbolic eye and then this stuff will start being revealed to you that's kind of what i took away from it mm-hmm. but it, it's I, I like it it's not my favorite kubrick movie but i do analyze it and yeah i've always liked kubrick's work and like i said i, I don't know what the other person this other guest you had on, so I'm not going to disparage anything he said. Yeah, no, and if you're interested, is his book is titled Kubrick-Khan. It's just Kubrick's name with the word O-N, Khan, attached at the end. But yeah, we don't have to spend too much time on that. But Kubrick, he certainly is critically acclaimed. And it does appear, uh, this may be inaccurate, but it does appear that, that he seems to have taken his infamy and it's grown posthumously like after his death he was he received you know praise while he was alive sure but it does seem like his infamy really rose after his death and i wonder if you think that was calculated in any way i know this is ranging in the conspiracy a little bit crazy conspiracy realm maybe suggesting he faked his death or maybe even just knew he was gonna die but do you think that added to his film's kind of pizzazz the fact that he passed away after eyes wide shut it, it could have. I was on a show recently, and when well, I say recently, probably about a year ago, and the one thing that you will definitely notice, and I mean, it's not 100%, but I think Kubrick has aged well. I think his movies have aged well. And I think if you look back now, I think The Shining is considered like probably at this point, like probably one of the best, like in the top 10 horror movies of all time, probably at this point. And the one thing I definitely have noticed is if you were watching a movie made presently the last 10 years or so, and it involves a haunted house of some kind, you will almost inevitably get some sort of Stanley Kubrick shining reference in there. That seems almost like automatic. Some are more well hidden than others. The one that I always liked was it was in the conjuring two. Of course there's three conjuring movies. I always thought two was the best one, but they're all pretty good. But if you watch part two, this is, of course, with the, about the Warrens where they're investigating haunted houses. And there's a scene in that where they, they, this demon known as Valak is standing at the end of the hallway. And it looks identical to the two little girls in The Shining standing at the end of the hallway. And it should, because if you put the frame side by side, the wallpaper in this woman's house, in the Warrens' house where this demon is appearing as a nun, is the same wallpaper from The Overlook. It's the exact same. Um, So, you know, and of course, in the movie, the Warrens are investigating a haunted house in the UK. And actually, what's funny about this is when you watch the movie, it actually opens at the 112 Ocean Avenue address, the Amityville Horror, and they're doing a seance there. When if you watch it, the filmmakers were like, you know what, let's screw this. Rather than just homaging, you know, or paying tribute to Kubrick, let's just put Kubrick in the movie. And when you watch it at the seance table, they got a Stanley Kubrick lookalike right there at the seance table. He looked exactly like Kubrick did on the filming on the set of The Shining. So in that, they actually are like, you know what, let's just put Kubrick in the movie. Let's not waste time paying homage or making these little Easter eggs. Let's just put Stanley Kubrick in the film. So that's the one thing that I'll say is if you watch these modern movies, especially if they're involving a haunted house, almost inevitably there will be some sort of Stanley Kubrick Shining reference somewhere in there. Yeah, very few directors have matched 
his sort of prowess. And I would say one of them, at least in my opinion, that seems to stand up to his sort of enigmatic filmmaking style would be Lynch. And you do write about Lynch in your latest Cinema Symbolism book. You talk about him in chapter seven, or I'm sorry, chapter 12 here or seven. I don't know how to read Roman numerals, (laughs) but either way, you're talking about this sort of black and white lodge. Explain what you mean by that as it pertains to David Lynch, because I kind of feel the same thing maybe or similar things going on with Kubrick, but. Right. Well, David Lynch, I first started taking one of his films in Cinema Symbolism 2, and then I continued on in Cinema Symbolism 3. He is, without question, what I would describe as heavy lifting. And the Black and White Lodges, this comes out of Twin Peaks, um, which is a show that, and movie, The Fire Walk With Me, that is literally overloaded with duality and doubles. And this is something that Kubrick, excuse me, that Lynch just loves to play around with. There is doubles all, all over the place with this. And the Black and White Lodges come out of Twin Peaks. Ultimately, his work is very steeped in the occult. The one term he uses in regard to the Black Lodge is this thing called the dweller on the threshold. And this comes out of the world of Madame Blavatsky and her theosophy movement. And she described the dweller on the threshold as sort of this negative personality that existed after death. It's this cleaved doppelganger that existed after death and kind of just hung around in this sort of ether type area. And of course, this is what exactly what is going on in the Black Lodge. It's sort of this double person this sort of remnant of the person, who, but it's only their negative qualities. And the whole thing ties into essentially what you call psychological alchemy. This is what's talked about by Carl Jung. It has to do with the union of opposites, what Jung called individuation. In alchemy, this is known as the rubido phase, the reddening. This is why, the, this is why it's the red, it, it, the Black Lodge is solid red. This is like the finality of the process, the fusion of the good personality with the bad personality, the dweller on the threshold. So again, we're dealing with very complex themes related to alchemy, psychology, theosophy. And again, it's very intense and dense material. But I like David Lynch. There, there are always little... Uh, things that he does in there. I thought the one thing that he does, and I know he does this in the one movie, but he he actually pays reference. He actually references The Shining, of all things, in the Twin Peaks, The Return TV show. This is the one now, Good Grief, this is six years old. This is the one that aired on Showtime. There's a scene that takes place in a hotel room. I can't remember it verbatim. It's in the book. But there's a scene where a woman is looking for a hotel room, and she has a little chihuahua. And if you watch the scene very closely, it's, it resembles the the scene in The Shining with Danny, with the uh, the scene with the rocket launch scene. And the one thing that's, that Lynch does is the little chihuahua's name is Apollo, of all things. And when you watch and you pay attention, you remember The Shining, you'll definitely see a linkage between the, link, the Lynch Twin Peaks and Kubrick's The Shining. So, yeah, he is just highly complex. And again, whether it be Mulholland Drive or Twin Peaks, just the name Twin Peaks, you're you're inevitably dealing with themes related to doubles and duality that's the one thing that david lynch is really into yeah it's one of the most surreal feelings just from art i think is watching lynch's work again opinion 
maybe, but you be the judge listeners if you're not familiar or haven't seen Lynch somehow, any of his work. But when it comes to his original film, or his first film, rather, Eraserhead, it almost seems like nonsense. Like, it almost feels the same way an abstract painting looks compared to maybe like a Picasso, right? Where one of them is sort of, Picasso's a bad example because he was a surrealist, but you understand where I'm saying, like, well, Eraserhead... Go ahead. That, the Eraserhead is a very, that's Gnostic. The Eraserhead movie is the Gnostic fall. This is the fall of the Kabbalistic anthropos, Adam Cadman, into matter. And you have the demiurgic creator hiding in the planet. That, that entire movie is the Gnostic fall, or the Kabbalistic fall. You can find this in the works of William Blake, with the fall of Albion being split into the four Zohas. So no, that, that is, Eraserhead is a very occult movie. And again, it has to deal with the Gnostic fall of humankind into matter, the fall of spiritual of the spiritual man into the into matter, essentially. The one thing I'll say about that movie, and I think I know where you're going with with this is, and I kind of talk about this in my books, is that the, the thing that is always kind of strange with Lynch is when you watch something like Eraserhead, it's this very sort of bizarre, like you said, surrealistic movie. And it's regarded sort of as high art because it's Lynch. But, you know, if you put if you took Lynch's name off of it and put Ed Wood's name on it, and it certainly looks like a movie that Ed Wood could have made. Well, how would it be regarded? It would probably be considered B-movie trash, like all of Wood's movies are. So it really is a fine line between high art and schlock, essentially. It's a very fine line. And sometimes they overlap because I find just again, this is just me. I find some of the Ed Wood movies just so they're so stupid and they're so weird. It's it, it almost is like, how did this ever even get made? It's like you're watching. It's like you're watching a child make a movie, but it's very serious. They, the works of Ed Wood and Lynch, the one thing they have in common is they take themselves very seriously. Probably Wood even more than Lynch. His movies are very take, are taken very seriously. They're meant to convey these very deep theories and opinions about society and prejudices. And of course they wind up being completely stupid, unlaughable. Um, so it, it, it's always one of the things that has interested me is this sort of very fine line between high art and the works of Lynch and the works of wood, which kind of almost look, they look alike yet one is garbage and the other is the surrealistic masterpieces. Always something that always kind of just, I've sat back and scratched my head about. Yeah, fascinating. I was unfamiliar with Ed Wood. I looked him up. Him and I have nearly the same birthday, off by one day. And even odder, the biopic about him came out the year I was born. So I don't know what the odds are on that, but it's just strange synchronicity I had to point out. Now, Lynch, one of my favorite films of his, and I don't know if this is even like, if this is even critically acclaimed or not, but Blue Velvet. Just because Nicolas Cage, he's always been one of my favorite actors. Some people love him, some people hate him. But do you have any thoughts on Nicolas Cage? Because I can't remember quite where I heard this, but I heard the theory that Nicolas Cage has a sort of idea about himself as an actor where he sees a sort of like... Almost the same way Quentin Tarantino's movies all fall inside of the same kind of alternate reality 
Cage kind of sees that about himself through films. Like each film is kind of the character that is Cage on screen evolving. Have you thought of that or heard of that theory before, that idea? No, I'm not familiar with that. But the Blue Velvet movie is, I think, Carl McLaughlin. What the Nicolas Cage one is, the one with Laura Dern. God, what's the name of that? It's not Blue Velvet, I don't think. Hang on, let me... It's, oh, it's Wild at Heart is the, uh, is the one with... That's uh, what I'm thinking of, yes. Yeah, Wild at Wild. Heart, not Blue Velvet. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's all right. No, it's Wild at Heart. I analyzed that. That's a very interesting movie as well. No, I really just take movies as I find them. I don't really... When it comes to particular actors and actresses, what interests me is when they're play, they seem placed in a movie for an occult purpose. And that's more common than you think. That that's, that there's some really unique examples of that. I thought at first, when I first started analyzing that, I thought that it was much more rare. But it's much more widespread than I had first anticipated. Would no, that be the case with an actress like, what's her name from The Wizard of Oz? She's like America's sweetheart in the 50s and then kind of, I think she ended her life in kind of poverty. The woman who played Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, you're talking about Judy Garland. Right, right. Well, no, that's not really what I'm talking about. What I mean is when an actor is used, we can get into The Wizard of Oz because there's some things going in on that. But what I'm talking about is like when an actor and actress appears and in a film and the intent is to transfer their cinematic baggage from another film into their current project. Uh-huh. But it's done in a way that is akin to sorcery. Huh. I'll give you an example of this. This is one of the best examples. I routinely give this one. There are many others, but this is what I'm talking about. Is For example, in the Star Wars movie, the uh, the one that came out episode, the first one of the new trilogy, The Force Awakens, mm. there is a scene at the very beginning of that where Max von Sydow is on this desert planet and he gives the guy the little piece of the chip or the map and then Kylo Ren lands and kills him and the movie continues. And I always watching that, and it, that, that scene constantly was bothering me. It just was like a splinter in my head. I'm thinking to myself, here's Max Lancito, this very well-respected, renowned um, actor who's been nominated for Oscars countless times, essentially being in this bit part in this kind of stupid Star Wars movie. Why? You could have picked any number of actors or actresses, or excuse me, actors. You obviously want a male, male in this, a male Kermit character. But why him? And it just hit me like a ton of bricks one day when I was watching it. That scene at that beginning is, it's also, it's psychological. It's a transference, but you don't pick up on it, but your subconscious mind does. The placement of Boncito on the desert planet is designed to conjure two other movies that are reminiscent of that scene. So what movie do we have where Max Boncito opens a movie in a desert playing a hermit and confronts an evil figure and winds up getting killed. Of course, it's The Exorcist, where Sponsito is in the desert as the hermit, the Jesuit, confronts the giant statue of Pazuzu, and then winds up getting killed. And so why do this? Well, the idea is when you see Sponsito on the desert planet, and he, Kylo Ren comes down and, he, and kills Sponsito's character, the whole idea is it's transferring the evil and the devilry of Pazuzu and investing it into Kylo Ren and the First Order, but it's doing it subconsciously. You can't see it consciously, but it's there. And that's not the end of the story because there's actually another movie where Von Sido is on a desert planet, is on a desert, 
playing a hermit and winds up getting struck down by a demonic figure. And of course, this is Dune. When we go back to David Lynch again, right. and this is where Boncito is the hermit on Arrakis and gets killed by the Harkonnen, Baron Harkonnen. So again, that entire opening sequence is designed to transfer the savagery and the evil of Pazuzu and the Harkonnens into Kylo Ren in the First Order. And the way they do that is by planting Max von Sydow in that film. That's the way it's done. It's sorcery. It's the only way I can describe it. It's literally a form of cinematic sorcery. It's very clever. When yeah. I first started picking up on this, it's like using Barry Nelson in The Shining. It's to reference James Bond without consciously referencing James Bond. It's a psychological trick. It's an art of memory device is really what it is. But it's very effective and it's very potent and it's very powerful. And when I first started noticing this, I thought it was very rare. I thought this is something that must be not happening too often. I Now that I have the eye for it and I keep an eye out for it, whenever, when I, whenever I watch a movie, it's much more widespread than I had initially thought. Yeah. Now, I originally, just a moment ago, supposed you might suggest Judy Garland as a sort of alchemical role, mostly just because of the nature of the Wizard of Oz and then her name being Garland. What happened to her after Garland's have a sort of Wiccan or folk magic use or purpose. But what are your what's your analysis of The Wizard of Oz? Because obviously this was a, like a few of the films we've discussed already. It was a novel based on a novel or a book written by L. Frank Baum, who was a theosophist. So we know that there's at least implicit occult connection there. But yeah, what's your analysis of The Wizard of Oz? Well, there's a couple ways to look at this. One is, well, there's, I'll go with four, four main talking points with The Wizard of Oz. Is one is, there's three ways to interpret it. Number one is that it's just an adventure story about this girl, this farm girl who goes to this magical land, has an adventure, then goes home, game over. That's what you'd call your profane or vulgar explanation. But then you have two underlying, you have two currents underlying the movie that are there. You have the political and you have the occult. The political is the one that's probably more well-known than the occult. The political is the Wizard of Oz is a retelling of the political, socio-economic matrix of the late 19th century America, where the Wizard of Oz is William McKinley. He's in Emerald City representing paper money. Of course, McKinley wanted to use greenbacks. He wanted to use the gold standard to back paper money, green paper money. This is why the yellow brick road or the gold standard leads to paperback money. In the novel, the ruby slippers are silver. This is a reference to something called known as the free silver movement. And again, it's the same thing where silver was going to be used to back paper money. So you have silver and gold leading to the creation of green money, Emerald City. The farmer is the scarecrow. The American laborer is the tin man. The political opponents of McKinley is the cowardly lion who represents the socialist Eugene Debs and William Jennings Bryan, all bark, no bite. Jennings Bryant was a teetotaler, didn't drink alcohol. And this is where the name of the dog Toto comes from. And well, the Tin Man, of course, is the American laborer. He, in the late 19th century, I think in 1896, there was a massive recession. Laborers were laid off in droves. And what got the laborer back to work was the oil companies, so Rockefeller and Morgan. Mm. And of course, if you watch the movie, this is what gets the Tin Man moving again, is the oil. The American laborer gets moving again through oil, essentially. So that's the political, but that's, there's a lot more to it, but I'm just going quickly on this. 
the occult theme is, of course, this is the what you mentioned, the theosophy, the neo-Gnostic undercurrent, where Dorothy goes to this magical land. This one's parallel with Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, by the way. She goes to this magical land and goes on this mystical adventure, walks on the golden path of religion. Meet Blavatsky said that in order to achieve enlightenment, in order to achieve gnosis, you have to have intelligence, fortitude, and uh, what is it? Courage. So this is why you see the parallel there with the three travelers. The scarecrow wants the brain, the tin man wants the heart, and the lion wants courage. And of course, you get to the Emerald City, and of course, you have the demiurge. You find the false god, the little guy. It's a false messiah. He's big and nasty, but it's he's a fraud. It's the guy behind the curtain. And of course, this represents the Gnostic tenet that the god you know, that the demiurge is the false messiah, essentially. So so we have this very occult, theosophical undercourt. I'm, again, I'm just going over this briefly. There's more to it. But then one of the theories, you know about this, and I think this is kind of what you're asking me about, is the movie was just plagued with bad luck. The, the what is it? The poppy, the poppy, which is the snow. When they fall asleep in the poppy field and the snow comes, the snow was asbestos fiber, of all things. Margaret Hamilton almost had her face burned off. In fact, she was very badly burned in it. It's the scene where she disappears beneath the yellow brick road in Munchkin City, Mm. and uh, she gets burned. I think it burned part of her arm. And uh, Margaret Hamilton told the story that if she was looking the other way, her face would have basically been burned off. And there's, of course, the urban legend with the Munchkin or the dwarf hanging himself. This is an endless bone of contention. Some people say it's real. Some people say it's fake. Some people say it's a Mandela effect, that it, it was real, but now it's changed to a bird or like a stork or something. And of course, Judy Garland became an alcoholic and a drug abuser. She died very young. I think she was 46, 47. Jack Haley had to go to the hospital, I think, because of the tin fiber. It had something to do with his face pain. He got in his lungs or something. And he, I think he was hospitalized and nearly died. So why all this bad luck? Well, one of the theories is, again, we turn to our... Your friend and mine, Master Therion, Aleister Crowley, and of course, <laughs> the most famous, one of the most famous parts of Wizard of Oz is what? I mean, it's, of course, the song, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And if you're familiar with a rainbow from Earth, from a human looking at a rainbow, from a per- it can only be observed by a human at a 42-degree angle. Rainbows on Earth, from the human perspective, can only be observed at a 42-degree angle. And, of course, the Wizard of Oz's most famous song is, of course, what? Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Well, if you're familiar with Aleister Crowley, the number 42 is the great cursing number. Anything related to 42 is a curse. It's Crowley's what he calls his grand cursing number. So the theory is that by using this rainbow trope in the Wizard of Oz and it's being the most famous song, that this house somehow conjured Crowley and his grand curse. And that's why the Wizard of Oz had such bad luck. But again, that's just one of the theories. That's the sort of magic, supernatural, occult theories. Yeah, interesting. Well, maybe be careful before you follow the rainbow to the pot of gold. It might be a pot of misfortune. Yeah, that's, it's such a fascinating movie, The Wizard of Oz. Maybe this is my own experience, but my sister growing up loved that movie. So we ended up watching it at least once a year and... But they always reran it once a year, sure. Well, I think we had the VHS, but yeah, I'm sure it was on TV as well. But yeah, another sort of childhood favorite was anything Disney. And you spent some time talking about Disney and cinema symbolism too. 
I'm curious about the movie Fantasia because that movie to this day, I remember, I remember my first time seeing it. I, I don't think I've seen it more than once, but it's stuck with me as a childhood memory watching Fantasia and being sort of confused, waiting for the dialogue. Didn't really know what I was getting into, but what's your analysis of Fantasia? Yeah, it's really, you can kind of narrow it down to the two segments with Night on Bald Mountain and the Sorcerer's Apprentice. There, I'm going to be honest with you, Mark, there, there is stuff in there. I haven't looked at Disney in like five years. So I'm, I know I talked about it in CS2, but I just can't remember. It's been so long since I've watched it. I'd have to go back and take another look at it. But I know there is a lot going on in those two, but right now it's just escaping me. Well, I have it in front of me. Maybe I can bring some things to mind. It was released on November 13th, 1940, and it was conducted by Leopold Stokowski, performed by the Philadelphia Orchestra. There's a lot here, folks. You need to buy the book. Support this man, Robert Sullivan, and find out more. Because I would spend it, we would be here for a while if I just read this whole chapter. But I, I analyze it in CS2, but again, it's just been so long right. since oh, anyone's yeah, asked me about Fantasia it. that I just, I, I just, it's, I'm drawing a blank on it right now. Yeah. Well, it always kind of stood out to me. Oh, here's a part. Maybe this will jog some thoughts. You connect Disney's Mickey Mouse in the sort of wizard cap as Hermes Trismegistus, which. That seems to make yeah, sense. Yeah, that's it. That's it because that's it. that does jog the memory because that has to do with the whole thing of parting. That has to do with Moses because in the Renaissance, Moses and Hermes Trismegistus are considered the same character mm. or at least parallels with each other. And there's a scene in that where it, it has to do with the parting of the water. And it's clearly, it's clearly investing Mickey as the supreme sorcerer, the magician, which, of course, that's. Hermes Trismegistus is the godfather of all magic. Now, that does bring back, that, you read that, that does return it to me. So, yeah, that was part of it, definitely. But, again, it's been a while since. It's, I have Fantasia here, I believe, but it's been just so long since I've taken a look at it. But those well, were, it, that's a movie that was analyzed, I did in CS2. Right, and you write that Mickey Mouse fills a cauldron with water, he gets tired, and then he uses his master hat to perform Kabbalistic magic to create a golem out of a broom. And yes, I'm curious, right. because this is sort of a theme in some of your other books as well, where movies include this golem archetype in ways that are sure. not always obvious. No, that's absolutely true. You have with that golem, it's a combination of you can look at it as a couple things. It's They run parallel. It's a hermetic statue or a golem. We'll just use the golem because they run parallel. Again, they're all the same thing. But no, of course, golem making is very popular in Hollywood. You can look at it as mod, in modern movies, a robot is a golem. Boy Batty in, in Blade Runner is essentially a Kabbalistic golem. In its, in its more traditional sense, where it's like a lump of clay or an inanimate object, that's invested with human qualities and brought to life, of course, probably your two most famous would be Frankenstein's monster. And then the other one, and this surprises people, would be Smurfette from the Smurfs. Frankenstein's monster is probably a little more easier to see. But Smurfette, what a lot of people weren't aware of is she starts as a lump of clay and Gargamel, the magician, uses numbers and Kabbalistic magic and the names of angels to turn this lump of clay into this little female creature running around and when smurfette is created she is not the smurfette that you know w that you're familiar with the one in the white high heels and the blonde hair she looks she's kind of this like 
like monstrous little Frankenstein female thing running around. She has the long black stringy hair, kind of the flat forehead. And her entire purpose is Gargamel sends Smurfette into the Smurfs communist village to undermine it, to sow the seeds of discord and basically ruin it, ruin it from within, like a fifth column or something. And uh, she does this. But then at the last minute, Papa Smurf, Karl Marx, catches on to Gargamel's scheme and he performs the white magic. Gargamel is, of course, the black magician. He's got his little hovel there with the basement, with the grimoires in it, with the human skulls and things like that. Papa Smurf performs the white magic and he turns Smurfette, this little Frankenstein-looking monster, into the blonde-haired one that we all know and love with the white high heels and things like that. So, but yeah, the, the golem figure is incredibly popular in Hollywood. And again, Frankenstein's monster. There's a whole laundry list of these things. Frosty the snowman. The snowman, the human-like thing that's brought to life with the magician's hat. It runs around and acts like a human being. That's a golem. So yeah, absolutely. This is something that's very popular in Hollywood. Comes out of the world of Kabbalah. Comes out of the world of Hermeticism. In Hermeticism, the thing's called a hermetic statue or an Egyptian statue. It's essentially the same thing, only slightly different. But it's the idea of making a statue and performing astrological magic around it to bring it to life. So you could see, obviously, that they're analogous. But no, again, you're absolutely correct, Mark, to bring that up. Very popular in Hollywood. That's irrefutable. Yeah, my my good friend who has his own podcast, you may have been a guest on it. If not, I'll introduce you. His name's Juan. His podcast is called the Juan on Juan Podcast. He's been... I haven't done that one, so send me an email for the guy. I will. I think he'd be... Happy to talk to you as well, because one of his interests, something he's been researching, is just that, golems and the homunculus and this very strange alchemical science that if you take those medieval texts at face value, what was going on? Well, they quite possibly could have been creating living beings somehow. This is kind of interesting. I wonder if films, in a way, are... And in a sort of alchemical laboratory, the same. I'm kind yeah, of. I know what you're. I know what you're getting at. Yeah, I mean, there is alchemy in film is a very popular subject matter, but it's not really what you're thinking. It has little to do with turning base metal into gold, although there are movies about that. The biggie. If you want to see an alchemical movie in a, in the traditional sense of the word about altering base metal and gold for some sort of magical or purpose the godfather of that would be goldfinger the james bond film this is where you got everything you want in that you have the gold you have the alchemist or a goldfinger who is using the philosopher's stone the nuclear dirty device to alter the gold in fort knox to make his gold more valuable that's alchemy 101 that's the altering of metal for some sort of purpose of some kind. In this instance, of course, he's the bad guy and he's trying to make his gold stash worth more money. But that's really like the textbook example of an alchemical film, just in the traditional sense. But then there's, and again, this is kind of what I was talking about earlier, there's psychological alchemy. And this is much more darker and much more unique. And these are much more interesting. These are movies that deal with what I would describe as the transition of the self where the person, where one of the characters, usually the protagonist, starts as one thing at the beginning of the film and ends as something completely different. And great examples of that, this is where you have, and I call them alchemical films, because 
it, there's no Athenor where they're making changing lead into gold or anything like that, but it's the character is going through some sort of change or metamorphosis or transition where they end up something at the end. And if you understand the color symbolism or the color identifiers with alchemy, the movies become much more easier to pick up on. And two of the great examples are The Shining, again, going back to Kubrick, where Torrance undergoes, go, undergoes alchemy. He starts off as this kind of eccentric, failed writer, and by the end of it, he has succumbed to this the Negredo phase, the Albedo phase, the Citronatus phase, and the Rubido phase, which is the blood, the reddening, and he's a psychopath. He's an axe-wielding maniac at the end of it. The one that's probably better than that because his transformation is just psychological. The one that is better than that, it's both psychological and physical, is Aronofsky's Black Swan. And again, this is where Natalie Portman's character starts as this sort of timid, shy ballerina. Um, by the end of this movie, she's a monstrous freak. She's like a bird-like creature at the end, and she's a murderess. So, and that one really breaks down, gets into all the alchemical symbolism with the change the red, the black, and the white, that this is all, again, relating to color schemes, and they're all there. So Black Swan and The Shining are two just great examples of, of, of alchemical movies. And then, again, is the movie experience, is the movie itself alchemical? Eh, watching a movie, yeah, it can make you scared, it can make you happy, but it's fleeting at the end of the day. So I see cinema more as documenting alchemical transition than actually performing alchemy themselves. Although that's certainly debatable. Yeah, it does feel like with certain films that the alchemy is really going on behind the camera with the way the director is orchestrating and creating what ends up on screen. But uh, when it comes to gold and alchemy, well, in one case, gold... I think of the Wild West and people running around with guns on horses. And it's funny because when you look at some of the few photos from those days, scant photos from the 1800s, people weren't really wearing like Stetson cowboy outfits the same way we see in the films. But that mythology of the cowboy has become a part of the American consciousness. And I wonder what's going on with some of these cowboy films. Do you have any thoughts on them? Fistful of Dollars, The Good, Bad, and the Ugly. Clint Eastwood's obviously the one of the more famous nowadays, but before him, it was John Wayne, right? And he was kind of like a megastar on screen. Right. Yeah, I delved into the spaghetti westerns of Leone, and I think it was CS2, pretty sure. He wasn't the last one. And yeah, these are, again, movies, I call these movies Christian mysticism. The, there's three of them. There's the Fistful of Dollars, A Few Dollars More Than the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is the best one of the three. And by, by then, Leone has really perfected this thing. And when it starts out, he's kind of like tinkering around with it. But, but it's really by the third one where he really gets this down. But again, it's sort of, Leone is a Roman Catholic, so you're dealing with a lot of Christian mysticism in, in, those, in the Dollars trilogy, where the Clint Eastwood character is clearly the Christ figure, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed hero. I believe it's in the first movie where he, he reunites mother and child, and I think the child's name is Jesus, and her name is Marion, 
miracle. It's the Madonna and child with the man. So this is kind of like a reuniting of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, and he's responsible for it. But then, of course, you have the whole Christ allegory with him, where he gets killed, or supposedly, and then goes into the crypt and then comes out invincible, where he has the bulletproof vest on. And of course, this is imitating Christ emerging from the tomb. The one where he really affects this, though, is the third one, which is the good, the bad, and the ugly, where clearly, again, the blondie, Clint Eastwood is the Christ figure, blonde hair, blue eyed, the good guy, he's the good, so he's the good guy. Angel eyes, Levon Cleef in the black is, of course, the devil. And the ugly, this is Eli Wallach, is humankind, who is in a state of ugliness after the fall from Eden. And if you watch the movie and you kind of keep that in the back of your head, you'll see that it, the whole thing is an interplay between God, Jesus, Clint Eastwood, and the devil vying for the souls of humankind, because they both want the ugly on, on their side. They both want the ugly humankind to come with them. So the whole movie is this sort of theological struggle between good and evil vying for the souls of humankind, and that's portrayed by Eli Wallach. There's some great little Gnostic things going on in that towards the end, where you mentioned the gold, and this was actually pointed out to me by another podcaster named Miguel Connor, who's into Gnosticism. And he, I was on one time on his show, and he pointed this, and I thought this was really interesting, where Eli Wallach at the end, and of course he winds up portraying the Jesus character, and that's why he's hanging at the end. It's a Judas Iscariot reference. But when he, when he gets the gold, I thought this was just absolutely great. When he finds the gold in the cemetery, it's the, he goes to the grave of Arch Stanton, and I, he digs that up, and there's, there, there's no gold there. It's the skeleton. He's actually in it. And, of course, the gold's in the next grave over. And the idea was behind this is that, the, that being greedy, being materialistic will get you nowhere. And the idea, what Miguel pointed out to me was, if you look at the name Arch Stanton, and you actually take the first name, and then you take the last name, and you chop off the S-T-A, if you chop off the S-T-A-T, you get the word Archon. And I thought that was really interesting, because this was sort of a reference to the Archons screwing around with humankind, and the message was, hey, don't be greedy, don't be materialistic, don't spend your life looking for money, because it's going to get you nowhere. And of course, that's what it did. He never found the gold. The, the gold is actually in the grave, the next one over. Well, I thought that was a great little Gnostic nugget in there with the name Arch Stanton. I thought that was really clever. And uh, yeah, the dollar trilogies, they're, they're some of my all-time favorite movies. I love The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. Again, that's uh, one of my all-time favorites. And uh, yeah, a lot, of, uh, a lot of Christian mysticism. I'll end on this point. There is another Roman Catholic director who uses the same techniques that Leone used in Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And the director I'm talking about is Martin Scorsese. And if you watch the film, it came out, I think, in 2002 or 2003. It's called Gangs of New York. It's a very well-made movie, very well done. If you watch that movie through a Christian, Roman Catholic, occult lens, sort of occult Christianity, you'll see these same things going on where clearly the uh, Leonardo DiCaprio character, again, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed figure, is the Christ figure, the Daniel Day-Lewis, Bill the Butcher is the devil. The whole idea is to cast the devil out of paradise, paradise square. The devil hangs out in Satan's circus in the, in the lower rings down below Dante's Inferno. Uh, so when you're watching Gangs in New York also, kind of keep an eye out for this these occult Christian themes going on because mm. uh, Scorsese use them, uses them just as effectively in, in, in Gangs in New York as uh, Leone does in Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. 
Wonderful. Well, this has been really fantastic, Robert. If I could ask you one more question before we wrap up, this is a little bit more on a wider picture level rather than about one particular film. Do you think that films are solely made for financial purposes? Obviously, there's an artistic drive by the individuals involved in making each film, but you know, Obviously, it takes a lot for these films to get made. Do you think it's purely a financial motivation, or do you feel like certain films are kind of put into the consciousness and maybe barriers are removed for certain films because of the impact they may have? Well, it's. I think that at the end of the day, Hollywood wants to make money. I certainly don't think they want to lose money. But yeah, it's always sort of this paradox with Hollywood where you're absolutely correct that they want to make money, but they also want to be artistic. You clearly see this, you know, the Academy Awards, most of the movies that get nominated, you've never even heard of, let alone seen. The big money makers, the blockbusters, and the ones that are well acted, they get no, maybe they'll get lucky to get a soundtrack or cinematography or maybe a best supporting actor or actress. But it's always these artsy movies that wind up winning. A lot of the times, not all the time. So no, I think Hollywood wants to be artistic, but I think that they want to make money. And I think they try to have the best of both worlds where they want to make an artistic, entertaining movie that makes money. I think if they can do that, they're successful. But I think Hollywood, they're risk takers also. Certain movies that Hollywood, there's there's always a certain element of risk taking. For example, look at the movie. Well, here we'll just take two movies. One one guy talked about, look at Ed Wood. No, No studio would back him. He had to get private funding to have these movies made. They never made the money back. So the people who invested in him lost money. I think the plan, plan nine was plan nine from outer space was backed by a Baptist church. They didn't get any of their money back. They lost money, but it's risk taking. But then you look at a movie, let's say, oh, like 1978's Halloween, where that was also independently made. That was backed by a guy named, I think it's Mustafa Akid. And they came to him for money. They needed money to have it made. And he read the script and he thought he thought it was very archetypal of American life. He understood he thought the babysitters were gonna resonate with people. They did. And he liked the idea of this guy, Michael Myers, encapsulating Samhain, Salwin, basically being the embodiment of Halloween. He understood that. And he financed the movie. He made how many millions, if not billions, of dollars off of Halloween and Michael Myers and the right. franchise. I mean, it was the biggest independent movie, I think, up until the Blair Witch Project. So it's always a give and take, and uh, it's always risk-taking. But I think Hollywood likes to make money, but I think they like to be artistic as well. And I think if they can have the best of both worlds, I think that's sort of the ideal situation for them. I do have so many more questions, but I know you have a limited time window, so I'll save them for our next conversation. Maybe we'll schedule it sooner than a year out for this time. So yeah, this has been really great, Robert. Tell the folks where they can go to follow up with you. Obviously, you have three books just on the subject we discussed today, Occult, I'm sorry, Cinema Symbolism, books one, two, and three, and then the Book of Enoch or the Royal Ark of Enoch, my apologies. Where else, Where could people go to get these? Yeah, actually, and there's actually one more book. There's a work of fiction called A Pact with the Devil. These are all available online by all the major online retailers, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Books A Million. You can get the print edition of the ebook 
Um, the ebook is not released for Pack with the Devil yet. That, that I just did a I just did a, a new edition of that, and the ebook will be out probably in July or August. I have to do a couple more tweaks to that, but the print edition is out. The books are available on all the main online retailers, and if you want information about me, it's my website. You can go there. It's my name. It's www.robertwsullivaniv.com. It's uh, links to buy the books are there. Again, it's the three cinema books, Royal Arch of Enoch and A Pack with the Devil. There's information about me. There's podcasts and radio shows that I've done. Once this one gets posted, I'll put that on my website. Certainly, there's a full biography of me. And again, updates. There's a blog, so I'm updating it. I try to do it as much as possible, but like you said, there's only so many hours in the day. So go to the website if you're interested, www.robertwsullivaniv.com. Um, or you can just find the books on all the major online retailers just by entering your name. You can enter Cinema Symbolism, Pack with the Devil, Royal Arch. Again, there's links to buy all these at, at my website. Very easy to navigate, so check it out. Excellent. Well, it's always a pleasure speaking with you, and I do appreciate you sharing your knowledge with me and my audience. I hope this inspires people to go and give their favorite film a rewatch or maybe watch one of the films we discussed today. I know I'm going to be doing that tonight. And I have a suggestion for you and anyone listening. If you haven't seen the film Society by Brian Yuzna, he's a director. A very interesting film. Maybe we'll talk about it next time you're on the show. But until next time, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is our second conversation with Robert W. Sullivan, the fourth very interesting guy. The first time I spoke with him, we talked about his book, The Royal Ark of Enoch. Um, deals with the Royal Ark Freemasonry, which is interesting. I didn't bring this up with uh, Robert at the time because I hadn't listened to uh, this podcast at that moment. But what I heard on a podcast with friend Steven Snyder uh, was that the Royal Ark of Enoch or Enoch in Freemasonry had something to do with the Nephilim. So uh, I brought that up that episode up in a episode that is coming out either next or next week so stay tuned for more info there but yeah yeah very interesting stuff on this episode with robert most of his books deal with film which is why it was a pleasure to have him on today to talk about that i knew it would be a breeze we can get through a lot of information and also uh, possibly um, help heal or mend any wounds that we created uh, with our last guest Jason Horsley who isn't very fond of uh, Stanley Kubrick so I figured Robert would have a different interpretation which he did and uh, yeah great episode all around I think I'll look forward to maybe having him back on once I've watched a few films that we can talk about. That was the one issue today is that a few of the films that I had uh, thought about asking Robert, I realized he didn't write about in his book. 
I think one or two of the films I asked him about he hadn't seen or written about. So, yeah, it'd be nice to have a few films that he's actually written about off the top of my head um, just for that next interview because I would like to have him back on. He's an interesting guy, a uh, very nice guy as well. So, oh, yeah, and I also put him in touch with Juan. So maybe if you aren't already subscribed, go and follow the One on One podcast, and uh, maybe Juan will have him on as well. So, yeah, got to give a shout out to our Patreon people. I think Patreon is capping me at 150 people. I honestly, I, maybe I'm just paranoid. This is a conspiracy podcast, but it's odd. So help me prove that theory wrong and sign up on the Patreon. Shout out to all those who have in the past uh, month here. Uh, we're only a few, one or two weeks into the month, one and a half weeks into the month. And we've got shout outs for Joshua, Kevin, Franco, Franco, uh, sorry, Franco, Franco, um, or maybe you would prefer Franco, Trevor, David, Noel, Danielle, Susan, Kevin, Paige, Peter, Eric, Dwight. Shout out to all of you. And uh, yeah, that's about it for the Patreon subs. I'm going to take my uh, time with this outro. Nice and slow here. Recently, I found a interesting app that I, or a web browser extension website called audioread.com. And if you'd like to sign up for audioread.com, there is a referral link in the description of this episode. Go ahead and click that. What audioread does is it takes your PDFs, your articles, whatever you want to read but don't have time to read, and it narrates it for you doesn't just narrate it for you it takes that text file with however format you upload it text PDF etc um, it takes it it narrates it and then it uploads it to an RSS feed that you can have in whichever podcast app you use to listen to this show so let's say you uh, like our guest today Robert Sullivan you want to uh, you know, purchase a PDF copy of his book. He's got ebooks available. And then you can take that file once you have it downloaded and upload it to Audio Read. And Audio Read will narrate it for you. So I love it. I think it's going to change the game on how I do interviews, maybe help me uh, gather more information faster before interviews, you know. Preparing for a guest, you know, usually I'll take a whack at reading, uh, you know, a couple chapters if I haven't already read the whole book. And uh, now I can easily get through, you know, any ebook just by turning it into an audiobook. I'm still going to read, but uh, this is a cool tool. So if you're not against AI, think about it and try audio read out they do free trials and you can use the link in the description to find out more so of course i gave my shout outs to the patreon people shout out to everybody on rockfin substack 
and to everyone who's sending one-time donations in. Uh, it's a big help, and it helps keep this show going. So if you can, please Venmo, Cash App, PayPal. My Venmo is at Mystic Mark. So is my PayPal at Mystic Mark, all one word. My Cash App is Mark Steves Jr. with the dollar sign uh, before the first letter, Mark, uh, with a K, of course. And yeah, Steves is spelled S-T-E-E-V-E-S. So Mark Steves Jr., that's Cash App. What else? We've got the Ko-Fi store. You can send a donation that way. Or you can pick up a copy of The Scene, editions one, two, or three. You can get the whole bundle for one low price. And uh, tons of cool stuff there. I have some art that I've created myself, some art that Tara's painted. That's all available on the Ko-Fi store. And of course, we got to give a shout out to our favorite supporter, product that I use on a daily basis, the Hit Kit, the number one way to get lit. You got your joints, your lighter, your lighter, your blunts, your spliffs, whatever you got right there next to your lighter. And I love it. I love it. It's awesome. You can get custom designs. You can go with the prefab designs that he has carefully laser etched into high quality. These, you know, these Hit Kits, they last. I've had, you know, a couple hit kits now, and none of them have broken. I'm not the most careful or responsible, and I have not even lost a hit kit because they're just so fun and convenient and easy to use, and I like them. So I, I always keep my hit kit close. I got one here at my desk. I got one that I keep in my backpack. I got one that I keep at my near my bedroom i got hit kits everywhere so get yourself a hit kit with the promo code crazy today and support an american hero making american products for american stoners that's right he is an engineer he's a small businessman okay help him become a big businessman and help me by signing up on the patreon the rockfin the Substack or sending a one-time donation today. That's all for me. Until next time, folks, enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. Extra terrestrial, trying to stay human in a cesspool of professionals. But I confess too much off of the tongue. All my aunties and my uncles shield the ears of the young. I be saying shit and they don't know where it's coming from. In like a hundred years, we went saw bomb before guns. Check the facts, check the Fed, check the stars. Stanley Mines was murked for a water fuel cell car. They each they own, you could stick with your own ways. But eat the rich, you drink the motherfucking Kool Aid. And I can see the red on your lip stain. White skin, blue collar, pure American made. Fuck it. Keep your blood soaked heritage And run the soul off the moon landed narrative Yeah, my girl thinks that I'm embarrassing My folks think I'm nuts but never question the parenting Stuck in bed so my boss thinks I'm lazy Connecting dots but it's all kinda hazy Good morning in the net feeling like I'm Dick Tracy My pack thinks I'm un-American and shady Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You could tell me that the president's an alien It wouldn't phase me My family thinks I'm crazy My family thinks I'm crazy, baby.
think that I'm off in the deep end. Want too many Netflix docs on the weekends. But check the budget for our military defense. Tell me we ain't scared of something not within reason. Steel beams, another 1492. And 9-11 was the red, white, and blue. And you be lit off the floor, and ain't got a clue. All your dreams just shit on a Rockefeller shoes. Don't believe a damn thing a politician ever said. Ain't one brick left to go up in the Fed. They still got bricks of cocaine to make crack. Oxy's killing the working class, FDA's whack. Talking like this, got kin talking behind backs. Too much to unpack, so they talk smack. And I'm just trying to converse with my clan, but it ain't fan. So I'm here setting up camp. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots, but it's all kinda hazy. Good morning in the net, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pack thinks I'm un American and shady. Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged, baby. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You could tell me that the president's an alien, it wouldn't phase me. My family thinks I'm crazy. Anything out, so 